0: There are many things that men and women use to measure one another, to rank other people against themselves, to decide upon a person's worth, a person's value or usefulness, or to try and calculate what kind of level of contribution they may have made, what kind of achievement. Might have been theirs when placed alongside others. And the world uses all kinds of different measures when thinking about these kinds of things. What kind of material wealth have you managed to accumulate? What kind of reputation or following have they established for themselves? What kind of achievements and accolades have they become noted for? What kind of circles do they move in? Whose names might they have on the contact list in their phone? How many likes or followers do you have on YouTube or on social media? But in the Bible, we discover that as far as God is concerned, there is one particular issue which rises above all others. And that is the state of a person's heart. We started to consider this in the final points that we had in last week's message. uh, Verses 8 and 9, where Jesus there quotes from Isaiah chapter 29. For all of their effort and their commitment and their good intention, everything about these scribes and Pharisees who are having this dialogue with Jesus It is all of no use whatsoever. And it will all come to absolutely nothing in these men. And why? Because, says Jesus, their hearts are far from me. And that's the issue. Uh, The other week we read from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, where even that far back in the Old Testament, God makes it crystal clear that even in the midst of so much emphasis upon law-keeping, the thing that God actually is most interested in was that his, his people love him from the heart and that their obedience to that law flows out of and is an expression of their love for him from the heart. It's always been about the state of the heart. And what do we mean when we speak of the heart? Well, it kind of encompasses quite a number of things. It's your innermost being, where all of your affections and desires meet with your thoughts and plans and dreams to drive and direct all of your choices and decisions and ambitions. That's your heart. The seat of your conscience The place where you feel guilt or peace. Grief or joy. Despair or contentment. The heart. And this issue of the heart remains the focus for us this morning. And this really is going to be a very simple message. It's going to be simple and easy in format to follow. I've just got two points, two headings That I'm going to talk to you under this morning. And so from Matthew chapter 15, first of all, in verses 10 to 14, false belief which leads to disaster. False belief that leads to disaster. You'll see there in verse 10 that Jesus calls the big crowd of people to gather in around him. He has something to say. He doesn't want any of them to miss what he's about to say next. And then in verse 11, we have recorded what it is that he says. You'll recall that his disciples have been criticised for eating without having first first washed their hands in the prescribed manner that was expected by the tradition of the elders. That was back in verse 2. And because of that, the Pharisees' accusation is that your disciples are defiling themselves. Your disciples are committing a great transgression. This lack of washing is most sinful. And the problem is, they are defiling themselves from the outside in. And Jesus refutes this position completely. And goes even further to say, actually, you've got things totally the wrong way around. Not what goes into the mouth defiles someone, verse 11. What comes out is what defiles you. And then at the request of the disciples, Jesus will actually provide his own explanation of that verse from verse 16. So we'll return to that saying a little later as Jesus actually gives his explanation of it. But as we continue through those opening verses, 10 to 14, uh, what happens next uh, is a classic example of people succeeding in making themselves look exceedingly exceedingly foolish as the disciples ask Jesus a question in verse 12. Uh, Jesus, do you not know that what you've just said really offended the Pharisees. Well, whether or not Jesus actually intended to offend the Pharisees, uh, whether he said what he said in order to offend the Pharisees, is probably going further than the text permits us. But what you can be certain of is that he knew that it would offend them but he spoke this truth anyway. There have been calls for repentance and faith in God's salvation and those calls have been resounding throughout the whole region of Israel since John the Baptist began to preach. And all of those calls have fallen on the deaf ears of these spiritual leaders of Israel. And they continue to promote and pursue all of their error and falsehood. And so we'll see, as Matthew's Gospel continues, Jesus will confront these men more and more directly. And they will be working against him more and more fiercely. Now, if you can recall the parable of the wheat and the tares, which we covered a few weeks ago, that's back in chapter 13. What Jesus says next in verse 13 in this chapter makes complete sense. Where Jesus says, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Do you remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? In the same field, God has planted his wheat. Satan has planted his false wheat, the tares. Leave them be for now, says Jesus in verse 14. Exactly the same instruction that's given in the parable in chapter 13. The day of their being uprooted will come. The day of them being separated from the wheat will come, but leave them be for now, says Jesus. And then he brings this startlingly simple, yet really arresting illustration. They are the blind, leading the blind. They have not eyes to see, They have not minds to understand. The God of this age, we are told in 2 Corinthians 4 4, the God of this age brings spiritual blindness to the mind so that they cannot believe, they cannot see. They are of the tares and they are hopelessly leading the rest of the tares to a shared destruction now if you're blind you want to be guided by someone who has sight yes that's pretty basic isn't it and yet this is such a powerful picture of course if you yourself are blind it's difficult to understand that the people who are trying to lead you are also blind but what could be more pathetic, what could be more alarming, what could be more disconcerting, more troubling, what could be more horrific than the image of a blind man leading other blind men to their shared death? And that's the picture Jesus puts in front of us, that he puts in front of his disciples. Are there any here this morning and you are just like these scribes and Pharisees and quite a lot of others in the crowd that day? You've seen and heard this Jesus of Nazareth. Now you haven't experienced him quite as they did, but it's all here for you, recorded on the pages of the Bible. Not only that, but you're also in the privileged position Of witnessing all of the events that take place far away from the crowds, between just Jesus and his disciples only. Like what happened out on the lake a few hours before. You're about to hear yet another exchange that takes place between Jesus and his disciples in the next few verses. And with the whole of your Bible open, you know how the story of the life and ministry of Jesus comes to a close. You actually know so much more than the people did that day. But despite all that you've heard and all that you know, you prefer to go the way of everyone else in the world. Is there anyone like that here this morning? You prefer to listen to all of the other voices. You choose to be taken in by other sights and sounds and opinions. You're attracted to worldly things. You believe you can see more value, more hope, more of a future in those things than you can in the Lord Jesus Christ. Like the Pharisees, you believe that you can make your own way in the world. And you simply cannot envisage the very real danger that all through the Bible, God says you are in. Falling in a ditch, Jesus says, doesn't sound so bad. It is if you can never get out of it. I used to work in Southport many years ago And in order to avoid all the busy main roads, I used to take the scenic route out through the farmland, cross-country. And most of those roads, if you know them, have drainage ditches on either side as you're driving along. They're about two to three metres deep. They nearly always have water in the bottom. And during the winter, during times of heavy rainfall... They can contain a lot of water and in winter in particular, it was not at all unusual to see someone who'd taken one of the bends in the road rather too quickly and run off the road and drop down into the ditch. We would see quite a few cars every winter, especially in one of those ditches. Over the years, quite a few people died in those ditches their car overturning as it rolled off the edge of the road, landing upside down, trapping them in the water at the bottom. Some people died in just 12 inches of water. But that was deep enough. Don't scoff at the ditches. Ditches can be a place of no escape. Ditches can be a place of death. That's the kind of ditch Jesus is talking about. Maybe there are people in the world you may be so tempted to follow or emulate lifestyles which seem so attractive. All of those things Belong to a world which exists in complete blindness, complete blindness to the realities that the Bible places in front of you. And to follow after those things is to go the way of disaster. It's important to say as well being a Christian does not mean that you cannot have or enjoy any of those things that the world has. That's not what the Bible teaches. God, in his grace, in his loving kindness, he does give us good things. He gives us things for our benefit. He gives us things that we may enjoy. But it's the pursuit of those things, out of the pride of your heart, believing that life really does exist for the accumulating and the experiencing of as much as you can of this world. And that's all that it's about and with your back firmly turned against God, that is to be heading for the ditch with all the rest. And for now, in his grace, God lets you alone. He's let you alone thus far, so that this morning you can sit amongst Christian people and sing Christian hymns, And have the Bible read and explained. He's left you alone for that this morning. He's also left you to carry on walking the path that so far you've chosen for yourself. Perhaps when you look around and see just how many people are doing the same as you, how few it is who actually gather in a place like this on a Sunday morning, and you wonder... Can all those many be so wrong? But all the time that ditch is getting closer and closer. And going back to verse 13 all those who seem to be getting along so well in the world, will one day be uprooted. All those people in the world, who seem to be getting along quite nicely, thank you, will suddenly discover that everything that they've been working for is gone. It is all gone. And the only thing that you will be left with is the guilt of your sin as you stand before a holy God. That's all you'll have left if you're chasing the things of this world. The guilt of your sin as you stand before a holy God, a righteous God, who is about to dispense his perfect justice. Oh, that the Lord... Would give you eyes to see, to see. Matthew then turns our attention to the question that's been posed by Peter. And he's struggling to fully understand what it is that Jesus is trying to say. And I think we sometimes find ourselves a bit exasperated with Peter, but you know, having grown up, Knowing only the teaching and example of the scribes and Pharisees who are regarded by the Jews in those days as exemplary role models of what it means to live a righteous life. Uh, I think we must not be too harsh on him at times. Nor the other disciples as they grapple with the need to reject and abandon so much of what for them has been presented as true religion. And they're having to abandon it all and completely change how they think. Lots of people today go through similar ordeals. For lots of people today, it can be quite a struggle. It can take quite some time. Maybe you've come from another religious background. Uh, Maybe you've come from a background of Christianity that's embroiled uh, with all kinds of error and heresy. Uh, Whatever worldview you may have held previously, It can take time sometimes for you to be able to abandon all of these falsehoods in order that you can take hold of the truth. In others, it happens in a moment, but not for all. But Jesus, what exactly did you mean? Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man or a woman, but what comes out of the mouth. That's what defiles them. Well, here's the second lesson. The evil that resides within the evil that resides within, from verse 15 to 20. The suggestion by these scribes and Pharisees that unwashed hands defiles your food, and that defiled food then makes you unclean on the inside, that is completely bogus, says Jesus. That is nothing more Than a natural physical process when food enters the body, does its work within you to give you all that you need, and makes its natural course through the body and out. That's all that is, says Jesus. It's nothing more than that physically. No, sinful thoughts and actions are a spiritual issue, an issue that originates from within. Because the defilement is already there. At the core of your being is a sinful heart. All of us, born sinful, as David declares in Psalm 51, verse 5. Born in iniquity. It's in me. And as the writer of the Proverbs declares, out of the heart, Spring all the issues of life. So out of this heart of sin and defilement, everything flows. That's Proverbs 4:23. Mark in his gospel, he covers this event in slightly more detail than Matthew does, which is unusual because Mark actually runs through the life of Jesus at quite a fast pace. Uh, but where Matthew lists Six categories of wickedness there in verse 19. Mark mentions 12. And look carefully and you'll notice how you can relate all of these categories directly to the Ten Commandments. Uh, And Mark emphasises this, from within, out of the heart, all these things come. All the forms of evil that men and women have ever devised are all wrapped up in every person's heart. Every single one of them. It's only by God's grace that you are kept from being as sinful and wicked as you might otherwise be. That capacity lurks within each one of us. Indeed, it is more than just a capacity It is the overwhelming tendency and nature of all of us in our sin. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, that really well-known verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. No one will ever have to teach little Caleb How to defy his parents and tell lies. He will do it. Because that's his heart. Even now, that's his very nature. The phrase evil thoughts. There in verse 19, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. The phrase evil thoughts, it doesn't quite do the original Greek word justice. The Greek word is dialogismos. That's the word from which we get our word dialogue. You dialogue within yourself. You debate and you discuss within yourself. This internal deliberation goes on inside your heart. Your sins are deliberate. Your sins are intentional. That's the issue. You are responsible and liable for every single one of them because this sinful dialogue goes on inside you. You are indeed without excuse, as Paul establishes in his opening chapters of Romans. In most passages where this Greek word is used, dialogismos, it's nearly always used to refer to the activity of a sinful nature. There are several times in Luke's gospel, you probably think of a few of them, where Jesus is said to be able to perceive the thoughts of their hearts. He's able to perceive the thoughts of those who are against him. That's the word that's used there, their thoughts. This inner dialogue that's going on within them. Jesus sees and knows and hears it all. In Romans 1:21, They knew God, but they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. That's the word. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They become futile in that inner dialogue that's going on within themselves. It's futile. Uh, More recently, Romans 14, uh, as we've been looking at in our evening studies, receive one who is weak in the faith but not to disputes over doubtful things. It's the same word Paul uses there, disputes, dialogues. It's this internal dialogue which takes place within the sinful heart, which is the source of all of our sinful thoughts and words and actions. You do not make yourself to become sinful by outward things entering in, you sin because you are sinful through and through on the inside, and out it flows, out it pours. This is a truth that none of us like. We don't like it because we realize and we understand that if this truth is true, which it is, all of us are responsible and accountable for our sins. You cannot point the blame anywhere else. And it's no use trying to suggest that, well, if that's how I am, and if I have no choice in the matter, for God to judge me, that makes makes it all very unfair. If you're saying I have this sinful nature and I can do no other, then for for God to judge me for that is most unfair. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Why not? Because you know the things you do are wrong, but still you do them. You know that you are guilty, and still you do it you know that your sins are shameful and still you carry on. And God may and God does and God will hold you accountable for your sins. for the most part, when our sins are uncovered, when our sins are exposed, when our sins are made public, we're far more angry at having been found out than we are ever repentant or sorrowful over our guilt. the true source of all sin and defilement lies within the human heart. The heart is ever flowing like a fountain of wickedness and deceit. What an awful storehouse of iniquity dwells within each side of us and it's ready to feed and nurture that inner dialogue that goes on within us and then to spring into action. And that's the issue. This is why Jesus came. Because this is the problem common to every man and woman and boy and girl that Christ came to remedy and resolve and to rescue you from it. All the ills in the world are down to this problem and this issue. There is only one answer, there is only one cure. Bodily washings get you nowhere. What you and I need, what every sinner needs, regardless of their rank or station, their position in this world, be they poor, be they rich, be they at the top of the chain, be they at the bottom, the one thing that everybody needs, the only answer, the only solution, is to plead as David pleads in Psalm 51. He pleads for a clean heart. He pleads with God for a renewed spirit, Because he knows God alone can give him that. God alone can do this. To be a new creation, as Paul describes it, in 2 Corinthians 5.17. That is the only answer. It's the only answer the Bible gives. It's the only remedy that we have to proclaim. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would plead with God as David did. Oh, for a clean heart. If you've never done that, would you not do it today? Would you not cry out to him? As you're watching, if you, if you watch tomorrow, it's going to be one of the largest gatherings of world leaders that has ever been tomorrow at the funeral. Will you not pray for each one of them that they would cry out to the Lord that they might have a clean heart? That's the only solution. It's the only answer God has. That they would plead with Him to be renewed on the inside. We would love to have a nation of righteousness, we would love our leaders to make righteous, godly decisions. How will that ever happen? Only if God gives them a clean heart and renews a steadfast spirit within them. That's why we must pray for them. And that for a while we continue to live in the midst of all of this darkness and wickedness, the, the cleanness of our hearts, that the the renewed spirit that God in Christ has placed in us will be seen and remain firm and strong and true. But you need to confess your sin before God, plead his forgiveness, ask that he might grant you newness of heart and life. When you take, to your, take yourself to the foot of the cross, the place where Christ took the sinner's guilt and shame, that you may go free and find pardon for your sins. I find myself turning to J.C. Ryle once more for my short conclusion, simply because I cannot better his insightful observations as we draw things to a conclusion this morning. He said this. Let it be a settled resolution with you that in all your religion, the state of your heart will be the main thing. In all your religion, the state of your heart will be the main thing. Do not be content to go to church and observe the forms of religion Look far deeper than this and desire to have a heart right in the sight of God. The right heart is a heart sprinkled with the blood of Christ and renewed by the Holy Spirit and purified by faith. Never rest until you find within the witness of God's Spirit, that God has created in you a clean heart and made all things new. Let it be a settled resolution with you to keep your heart with all diligence. That's Proverbs 4 again. To do it all the days of your life. Even after renewal, your heart can be weak. Even after putting on the new man, there can still be deceitfulness. And how many ministers of the gospel have had their ministries collapse in disgrace simply because they did not guard their heart? Never forget, says Ryle, your chief danger is from within. And if you don't think that's true, you're already in far more danger than you realise. The world and the devil combined cannot do you so much harm as your own heart will if you do not watch and pray.